0: So welcome back. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, it's been a long time. And, and I see that you're going back and forth from Vietnam to the United States constantly. What's happening uh during these trips? Like why are you going back and forth a lot? Uh yeah,
1: we've we've been very fortunate that uh the the market for us in the US has been growing really well. Um and I think us going back and forth a lot is not only to nurture the the growth but then also I think more importantly to have FaceTime and be on the ground and talk to people and interact with with the community essentially, um, not only in California but all different states from Washington, New York, um, Louisiana, um, and it's in part not only to promote the brand. I think that's that's the the obvious uh, aspect of it, but I think more importantly is to to interact with with the community and see you know what resonates with people and what's not um, and what people are interested in um especially you know around our brand and and the the work that we're doing um and that's something that i think is really valuable for us to be on the ground
0: it, it is it's so important to have face time with all of these leaders that you're hitting in new york and la and i want to know while you're away and doing all this stuff who's watching how is uh, the production in vietnam being managed like what's the sort of the logic behind um, the production? Is it sort of like just a one big batch and, you know, it's not that difficult to manage or is it a very intricate process that needs somebody with your, your distinct uh, tongue to to understand what's going on right or wrong in, in Vietnam?
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually a, a really tough uh, balance. And um, so the reason I can't stay in the U S for, you know, the whole year for example is i still have to do all of the uh the sign off or the quality control on each batch um so we do have uh staff on the ground in vietnam who work on the production um the sourcing the supply chain for example um but when it comes to signing off before the bottles are are sent off it's still me um and in that way it's still there still is this kind of like a a sense of craft just cuz things are still um signed off batch by batch. And that's uh yeah, that's kind of uh that's kind of the double-edged sword behind behind I guess like craft manufacturing. Um but but yeah so that's that's essentially how we we operate is I can travel whether it be to the US or to another market. Um but then every other month or so I have to be back in Vietnam to sign off on everything that's that's about to be sent off.
0: Um, So when you sign off on something um, I don't know if we talked about this in, you know, a few years ago, but when you sign off on something, is it something very, uh, qualitative, qu- quantitative, where there's numbers where you dip uh, a meter in and it's, and, and it hits certain numbers and you're like, okay, that department is good to go. This department is good to go. And then you actually use your, 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 your facilities your your, your taste and your nose to go, okay, that is kind of where I want it. And how do you consistently get it to where you want it to go? You know, with your nose, all the time and consistently.
1: Yeah, it's it's really tough. It's a both. It's a it's both a numbers and a qualitative game. So the numbers um, allow you just to make the the standards. Um, so say for example, like safety protocol or or making sure that it's actually the amount of alcohol that's on the the label, and that doesn't require me to be there um, the staff and, and our lab can measure all of that, um, regardless, but the qualitative aspect is difficult and it's actually not unique to just us. So, um, in a lot of, uh, distilleries or a lot of wineries, for example, or even, uh, perfumeries, uh, one of the most important, uh, job positions is the blender or, um, you know, in, in France, they call it, a. Gosh, I can't remember the name of the the this particular person, but it's the person who's in charge of assembling the product. It um I think in, in the French term they call it assemblage. Um, and elevage. Elevage is to take care of the product while it's 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 maturing, and then assemblage is to 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 actually put it together as a cohesive product. Uh and what I mean by that is so, say for example, any batch of like cognac or whiskey, um does require blending because even at a mass production level, there's no way you can guarantee uniformity, um, you know, in, in the same barrel warehouse, for example. And so it's something that you generally just have to keep on doing. And and I think like I'm not at that level, I don't think. But um, but certain blenders for big brands have their noses insured for tens of millions of dollars, for example.
0: It's insane. Yeah. Um, but all, it's yeah. And what, what else is insane is that you don't come from a lineage of guys who are like, quote, unquote, like, you know, like in the beer world, like brewmasters, right? You don't come yeah. from a tradition. I mean, what Vietnamese person does come from that tradition in Vietnam or in the diaspora? Not much, not many of us, if any. Yeah,
1: we, we don't have a history. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say we don't have a history, but we don't have a modern uh, commercial history of of these types of of, of products, um, and it's actually quite an interesting debate because uh, it's it's a little bit of a of a crossroads uh, and growing pains for Vietnam as as we are as a country and a people. Um, because as we are modernizing, sometimes these kinds of uh, crafts will will be done away with essentially for for the sake of modernity. You know, and I think a, a great example is like fish sauce, for example. Um, that's a whole nother story, but but how the the rise of uh, of industrial fish sauce is actually not really made from fish anymore in Vietnam. Um, but but anyways, yeah, we don't we don't come from a modern history of this kind of uh, lineage, but I think traditionally we do have it. It's just never been um, traditionally commercially modernized in a globalized economy. If you will,
0: well, I I can't let you continue about this whole fish sauce thing. <laughs> you, yeah. you hit on on uh, on a deep nerve. What do you mean it's not made with fish anymore? I just had kung and kung from Red Boat on, and you know we never even came close to something like that. What what's going on? So the the this is it's
1: it's um it's a point of controversy, but it's also not something that's uh, hidden is a lot of the industrial fish sauce in Vietnam right now is actually made from uh, amino acids, which is the um, it's the chemical building blocks of protein and umami and it's actually the, the constituents of what we would consider fish sauce, but it actually doesn't need to be made from fish. You can actually make uh, amino acids by fermenting rice, for example, um, or soy, for example. And it's it's um well, I don't know how much you. Maybe you could edit this part out, or maybe not. But it's it's it's, it's a lot of the conglomerates, such as Masan Group, are responsible for uh, the the uh, the um the the industrialization of fish sauce, but also the fakeification of fish sauce, if you if you will. And one of the problems that we have is the definition of fish sauce is so loose that it allows uh, these groups and. Every year when they have these 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 meetups and these conferences uh, in Vietnam, there's always a point of contention because for a long time and I the last time I was at this conference was probably seven or eight years ago so this is actually before some guy the big controversy was why are people allowing son to sit at the same table as traditional fish sauce makers um but because those that fish sauce is one it's quicker to produce and therefore it's cheaper to produce it has a lot more mass appeal. And this is actually double thing. It's where it's really Orwellian that people actually become very uh, accustomed to that type of fish sauce that when they actually have fish sauce like Red Boat, they no longer are are accustomed to the taste. And a great point about this is actually our distillery, our staff meals. I have a, a case of Red Boat and the staff can't eat it because it has such an intense flavor that they went back to the Masan stuff. And this other part is also controversial. <laughs> what I visited Ainkoog before, um, his, 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 um, the, the person who was driving the boat was also using Masan fish sauce, mm-hmm. you know? It's so ubiquitous. It's almost like us saying, you know, um, you know, Kenneth, you know, why are we uh, not making our own Coca-Cola anymore? And we're just, you know, buying the stuff off the shelf and it's not really made with uh you know coca leaves or anything like that it's it's kind of in the same vein in the sense and it's actually really shocking because um you know when we ask people like i asked it is silly just out of curiosity it's like do you know that this red boat fish sauce is real fish sauce and they're like oh wow yeah and I was like, well, don't you feel it's kind of weird that we're on a day-to-day basis not actually using fish sauce and it's called fish sauce? And like, yeah, but it's just something that they're so accustomed to, like Vietnamese people in Vietnam, that's just, you know, even with that principle in mind, the, the bottle of fish sauce that Red Boat is still half used and they're still going through gallons of other like ma san and stuff. It's it's a it's a very distinct different flavor um it's less pungent it's more sweet and things like that
0: um, you know how i feel right now i feel like uh i'm a 55 year old man just learning i'm not 55 but i feel like i'm a 55 year old man just learning that my father had a second family for the first time
1: yeah it's it's really shocking and also like you know uh you know the three crabs uh fish sauce in america and things like that or the the fish sauce that has wok on it yeah. Like the mass one right in in America is actually not made in Vietnam. It's made in Thailand, you know, and it's actually a copyright breach. Um, but, you know, Vietnam doesn't really we we're not good at defending our own IP. But but most of the fish sauce we eat in America as Vietnamese diaspora is actually not even made in Vietnam. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's a uh, the whole fish sauce thing. I think I'm going in Red Boat. I mean, I have a soft spot for it because I think they're fighting the really good fight, you wow. know, um, and it's something that if you, I, I I don't know if you visited, um, but you know, it's really shocking how, um, quickly things are, um, I guess like the, the, the decline in the amount of fish sauce producers in Fuquo, for example, um, there's a lot of things we can get into that, but it's just like, yeah, it's a lot of double things. Like we're not sometimes in the, in, in, for the sake of modernity and, and development, a lot of things fall by the wayside, um. And fish sauce is a really good example of that. You know? So
0: since we're on this debate, right, like I get what you're saying about like not being able to really even crave real fish sauce or know the difference or even being so conditioned to, to have this amino acid, basically uh, fish sauce from a Petri dish. Right. But that all being said, what, can't we make an argument that this is good for the environment or this is good for the ecosystem and we're not overfishing anchovies and therefore allowing the ocean to replenish its supply of more fish
1: yeah we could make i mean there's always a tug and pull right i think uh i think one of the things i think the the major thing here is i think we can we can make alternatives to fish sauce which is already being made um but there needs to be a transparency um, behind it. So for example, say, for example, we make an alternative to say like, I don't know, champagne. I don't think the French would sit around and let us use the word champagne or a faux champagne. Um, because it, it, it just like, it cheapens and it, it, and it dilutes their brand. Whereas we're allowing the, I think the the devil's in the details, let's call it something else, but why are we allowing it to be sold as nukmam, For example, there should be more stringent regulations um and enforcement of regulations so people know that hey this isn't fish sauce by definition because i think the the dangerous thing here and i think the the main point is it's it's very orwellian very double speak because then we can become the condition to calling something that's not fish sauce fish sauce um and it just changes everyone's mindsets completely it's actually a really generational and country-wide reprogramming which is kind of insane
0: um now uh that all uh comes into a little bit more uh now narrower focus for me which is different sets of 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 laws and different departments of legal sort of uh when the government has to go in and enforce so legal enforcement in vietnam uh, as it relates to in country and out into the real world of beyond vietnam's borders uh, of enforcement like when you say that fish sauce uh that is produced in Thailand is doing copyright infringement who's gonna enforce that a and what are they actually how are they crossing the line uh other than saying that this is Vietnamese but it's produced in Thailand
1: yeah I think so with the um say with like uh AOC um Aocs like uh the 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 kind of um Brand or designation for specific part. Oh, actually, I have some right here. I've been using. I've been. I So I went to France. Uh, we went to France, and I I keep a uh, um. I keep this packet uh, as an example. So this is just like a French um, a French cheese cracker, and it actually says very clearly on here. Um, and the French are really good at this, and the Europeans in general. It's AOP. So it says AOP on here, meaning that the cheese used in here has to be from Britain or Brittany. Um, and they they often do that with the butters and things like that. And it's they they and this kind of like a transparency uh, in terms of supply chain and what types of products are being made where and making sure that they go to bat for the farmers or for the producers. Um that's all done by an agency that's actually under the the equivalent of the USDA, the, the Department of Agriculture in France or in Italy. Um, and there are very recent occasions of this where um, the French bar, I believe the Swiss, I don't remember one of the two countries, actually went to legal court to sue the uh, um, the U.S. government to a, from because they allowed a cheesemaker maker um, in a certain state to produce Swiss cheese. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's from from not from France, but um But saying that, yeah, you can't allow a farmer that's not from this this AOP to be producing and and marketing this quote unquote Swiss cheese if it's not made in our country, for example. And so this is actually a very uh, crucial. This uh, discussion on the the role of soft power, because a European country, like especially a Western European country has a lot more like clout to go to bat with a country like the US for um, as opposed to, say, for example, Vietnam um we do have certain designations such as phu fish sauce but you know between that or trying to negotiate even just any trade deal with the us i think that often falls by the wayside we don't have that kind of soft power um and it's something that has been brought up over and over again um things like losing the ip to st25 rice for example uh or going to bat for for pho because there was a recent recent controversy where a Chinese company was actually manufacturing pho, not in Vietnam, and then selling it to the U.S., for example. Um, so there's a lot of cases where producers are starting to push, and some guy, us being one of them, is pushing the Vietnamese government, for example, is like, hey, it doesn't make sense to be giving out all these designations if you don't go to bat for us. It's just, you know, just, you know. Giving out designations for fun, but they only have meaning if you really defend them, you know, and it's not only with the international market, but we also have to start at home in Vietnam. You know, I think, I think, I don't know if we talked about last time, but it's like, it's still, we have not made enough progress even from two to three years ago. For example, like Louisiana, like Zian Pomelo's, for example, um, we buy from someone that's in the village who has a certification from the government. It's like, I grow this particular Boi in the Zian village. And that, if you step outside of that village, people are just undercutting it by half, you know, and they're still allowed to grow that, that, that Boi and sell it as buisian, And that's actually a disservice to um, not only the farmers, but to consumers because you don't know what you're getting, you know? Um, and, and yeah so i think that's that's kind of where we're at it's it's not only a question of soft power from government to government but it's also it's it's on us as consumers to be as stringent and demanding as much in terms of quality and transparency as we would with any other product like a french cheese or like anything in japan for example it's like why can't we hold ourselves to that kind of standard um and that kind of level of respect you know and we can't demand that um unless we
0: start with ourselves as well. I come here for the gin and alcohol, and I get lessons on civics and politics and how we should be doing you know, this legal kind of reformation for our uh, for our brand. I mean, and essentially what's happening is this is all brand new for the country of Vietnam, yep. all of this sort of enforcement, this idea of uh origin source origin uh things are being developed uh for the terroir if you will and market it and brand it for it is not uh, a tradition that we have throughout vietnamese history has it been i think it has like i guess like if we
1: um it hasn't. It hasn't. I think um, I think Vietnam has a very interesting relationship in terms of governance. Um, but if you if just keeping on the same same vein as as um, as what we were talking about before with with pomelos is there is a, a, a documented history of, say, like, Boisian. And um, and um, it's one of the two sweetest pomelos, naturally sweet pomelos in vietnam and it was offered to kings um i think one of the things that we we as a country have faced is where we're 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 not a young country in terms of like how many years we've been around um but if you look at kind of like the tumultuous history and it's all packed into the last like 150 years of all this upheaval and turmoil and that's nothing new i mean we've been doing you know vietnam has had that kind of tumultuousness with the chinese and whatnot um but what i guess what i'm trying to get at is vietnamese because of the long history of struggle and tumultuousness we have this kind of like really intense survival attitude and sometimes survival attitude is is um we forego certain types of like quote-unquote luxuries for example um and I think one of the things that we also have embedded in us is we don't think that what we have is 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 worth, I don't know, say like a high price tag or can stand alongside other products, for example. I think that actually Vietnamese pomelos are some of the best in the world. Um, but we don't have that kind of like, it's it's really hard to find someone in Vietnam who would be able to have that kind of confidence and say, yes, our pomelos are some of the best in the world. And it's like, we're nothing to be messed with like that kind of self confidence i think is lacking um it's changing of course but i think that reflects in how we defend our ip you know is it worthy of being defended is it is it worthy of going to bat you know like if you really treasure something yes you would go to bat for it you know it's it's it it's i think it's a reflection of of us um but it's changing i think it's changing
0: you know when you think about a thousand year of Japanese artisan culture and you think yeah. about the traditions that go deep right a thousand is probably the starting number but I bet that there's a 1500 1200 year tradition that continues with sword making or whatever you know mochi making we are a relatively uh new country when it comes to these sort of processes that are elevate it within our own mind right we we don't put a invaluable price tag like uh this is like off limits this is not this is priceless we don't have that culture yet and having people like you on the ground and pushing for i don't know what we what else to call it but artisan culture like this deep respect for process right and to facilitate to get the government to see how important that we just don't go in and just do things buh-bye. We just go yeah. in and we have to put our 1,000 year old hat for our profession and really put it on the line and say, you know what, company A is gonna compete with company B in this for like 300 years, 400 years, and we're we're going at it. And these are the only ways that, you know, tried and true process of of making gin or making uh you know whatever we product that we put our stamp of approval on we have to have that sort of sense of deep pride and is it being corroded as this new age of social media and the ways that are you know a TikTok culture and things are just going uh quick and fast or as a result of social media are we having a a renaissance uh, a rebirth of a respect for processes, uh, because I know in the U.S., uh, some places in in the in the far in back east, uh, they're making uh, a metal work that is going back to the anvil and just you know really work uh, working on the idea of like artisan production.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, social media is definitely a double edged sword. I think social media uh, has a lot of benefits. Without social media, a lot of these artisan. Um, Villages, for example, wouldn't have the 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 light of day to to be able yeah. to reach a global audience and without a global audience. and I think this is unfortunately we have a we have a, a little bit of a bad habit of, of being single is oftentimes that we seek outside approval and validation before we value it ourselves. Um, and a great example of this is Zaza. Um, in the north when it was written up by, I believe it was either CNN or New York Times. It was just blew up in terms of um of of wow, this is like something like that's validated by this huge uh American news outlet. Um, which is great. I think that's amazing. But then it's like, do we really why do we need that to happen before we say, hey, yes, maybe we shouldn't destroy this this or let this craft erode completely for example um another great example is hang jong for example it's like Mac leading yin is the last person on the globe that can do this and he hasn't been able to find a a student that's insane to me and he's not the only one there's so many of the crafts like that that are just going extinct um and i think social media what that does is social media uh the good side of social media is hey look at all these crazy amazing things you know who's actually really great at doing that is the china china because i i I scroll through tiktok a lot on on, um i guess i'm on the craft artisan tiktok but they have amazing videos that highlight how um oh this person's continuing this thousand year old legacy of pottery for example or you know how paper was traditionally made in china and whatnot there's so many views on that and it's it's tiktok or like social media has an amazing um ability to amplify um but of course the 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 negative side of it is it also has an amazing ability to amplify um stuff that's misinformation or or maybe like the fast new trend to, to to maybe even erode away the the tradition even quicker. Um, for example. I think one of the one of the key uh examples of this is there's a very famous now, now famous by me place in Hanoi. I'm not gonna say the name just because i you know, don't want to get detract the from their business because it is still local business, but they've erupted in terms of popularity and they're not even like an original by me spot. Like an old school bite me spot, and they've got lines of Westerners just like out the block. But how, you did know? They, so I th- how did they accomplish that? I don't know. I think it's like, well, the idea is you're just trying to go viral, you know? Um, but you may not, if you go to this bite me spot, it, you know, anytime you're in Vietnam, like let me know. I'll, we can go past it and you'll see it's so stark because only Westerners eat there. Um, so that's, you know what I mean? Modern fuckery, right? I mean, yeah. Go- and, and and the crazy thing is, everyone who's like a food blogger will blog about that, and it will just re rebound and just like keep amplifying that. Oh, this is Hanoi and bánh mì. Oh, this is Hanoi and bánh mì. But no Hanoians are eating it, you know. <laughs> it's it's like so that's the that's the bad side of social media. But the good side is, hey, we can now start to amplify all these craft villages and all these people who before didn't have access to a global audience, you know and they can sustain their, their livelihood or modernize um, their application of their, 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 their craft, for example, in ways that would not have been possible otherwise. So that's the good side of this globalized economy and social media and the role of social media. But the bad side is also, you know, there's people get fixated on the bad side, which is, you know, very deservedly so. But we also have to realize that Like, for example, what we're trying to do with uh, the Red Zao medicine um, uh, craft or tradition, for example, would not have been possible or would not be possible without social media, for example. You know, um, farmers using uh, Facebook now, like it's just an amazing way to communicate and bridge barriers, geographic, social language and and whatnot that wasn't around before, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I I hope that there is somebody on the ground doing YouTube videos dedicated to artisans and you know like this one TikTok video I saw with uh I think it was a Japanese block ink maker. Oh yeah. Oh my god, that was so so interesting. I think it was like a 300-year-old company in Japan. Yeah. They they broke it down like this block is worth a $1000, right? Yeah. The same block in, in India. In- yeah. The same block in India is like $9, you know? Maybe. Yeah, I know. Right.
1: And that's the crazy thing. And I think like, it's just the, the ability of social media to do that. But then also, again, this also goes back to this mindset that in Japan, they're like, this is, we're nothing to be messed with. Like, this is an amazing lineage. Like I would argue that we can take that same mentality and apply it to something like zaza for example. You know, like it's it's the same kind of thing, right? Like it's not fast paper making. This paper making is literally by hand, you know, like every sheet of paper is literally poured by hand. And I think like the reverence of that, like if you think about that versus like the ink block video, you know, if we were just to juxtapose, like we wouldn't say like, oh. Um, this is made in Vietnam. But what if that was just someone just said, oh, this is made in Japan and how that kind of reverence would, you know what I mean? Like, like you both have that same kind of like clout.
0: Daniel, this is probably uh, the most uh, uh, frustrating thing about talking about our culture sometimes is the lack of reverence for process is the lack of reverence for uh you know fuck money let's just get this thing done the right way for a thousand years and let's just see how far we can take the craft of this original craft and the way this has been done for hundreds of years and let's just see how we can make it better micro like micro better every iteration and that is i think a, a An attribute that the Japanese culture has, and perhaps the German culture and the French culture. And how do we instill that into our country, into Vietnam, to produce like high quality art artisans one day? Because without it, we're not going to ever be. I mean, we want to be famous for the work that we do, and we cannot arrive at this at this sort of uh, uh place in the world if we don't talk about it and we don't find a way to instill this sort of cultural pride that out of this place in the world we produce x y and z
1: yeah it's it's that's so hard because we have to change so many things it's not only changing the global perspective of vietnam like we we are already making so much progress in changing like you know just like in hollywood now like the 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 representation of not only just asian americans but also vietnamese americans is is rapidly changing it but i think like you know going beyond this 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 global brand that vietnam is a war i think that's such an amazing feat that we're we're undertaking as a community you know um but that's only impacting how people from the outside view us but internally we have such a long way to go to say for example we don't have a very good um vocabulary for craft because the way that you translate craft is to go and to go has a little bit of a negative it's meaning a connotation
0: yeah automatically yeah. you're like you're a manual laborer you know that's, yeah when you think of the word to come it's you know it automatically puts you craft is such a, a beautiful word if you really yeah. think about it right it can mean yeah. so many dynamic ideas that require your attention and your sort of your motor skills whatever it is it just requires process but when you think of tukang, this is manual labor yeah I mean, literally and manual labor
1: and it's amateur it sounds amateur and it sounds cheap and it's just that's such a, a travesty you know and then we we demand so little and we expect so little and we undercut each other all the time. Um, it's actually really devastating, you know, like I think like, for example, you know, like it's just products that are made in Vietnam, in Vietnam, for example, never garner, like, it's so hard to garner a high price. And that's just like the sad mentality of it. Like the, the idea of Tukong or, you know, things like that. It's just, our vocabulary isn't there yet, you know? Okay. And
0: I so, think so this translates. Oh, wow. This is, a root cause of another. Um, maybe this is a root. I don't want to make I hate the causation correlation. I, I, I try to really stay away from those kind of ways of thinking. But if we don't value our own, starting at the yeah. tokong to level or at the wordplay level, at the the root etymology of what we're trying to kind of like uh uh what we're trying to infuse into the the pride and work. On the bigger stage, when you pull back and you go into New York and L.A. and you look at Vietnamese food versus Italian food or Japanese food, it's projected in the the pricing. Yes, it's projected in the pricing and the value orientation of the consumer. And it trickles down from like the history of artisans and craft and to now modern America, you know, big city. We don't command the same price, even when our uh ingredients are higher quality and our process is higher quality and takes more labor than an Italian dish. Oh, again, totally. I hate to keep hammering this point home over and over again.
1: It's no, but it's really important because the more you hammer it home, you know, it's the more it becomes embedded in the in the national dialogue because you have such a, an amazing reach, and it's really important that that it just stays in the forefront. So for example, I think like, it's just the 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 age, it's not an age old, but it's it's definitely a metaphor or comparison that's been used over and over. It's like ramen versus pho. You know, in essence, it's literally pretty much the same thing, except you would never question a $20, $30 bowl of ramen. If you were to even go to New York and you ask people who are leading, you know, one of the, the some of the first Vietnamese restaurants in Manhattan, how the struggles they had to deal with in terms of charging more than $20 for a bowl of pho, it's, it's just insane, you
0: know? And if you think about it, ramen is just the boiling of fat, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Is- crap it's horrible nutritiously and if you think about fat it's the boiling of bones collagen protein it's power coming out of its source power of of fixing your sickness when you're sick and it's like drinking uh uh chicken broth and bone broth ha- why is bone broth cheaper than melting fat doesn't make yeah. sense to me
1: it doesn't make any – well, yeah, exactly. And it's it's, it's and there's such an amazing – like if you look at pho and like the way that Vietnamese people ascribe quality to pho, it's actually so labor-intensive because it requires mm-hmm. emulsification and clarification of the broth. Like you can just throw like what you're saying, fat, bones. I'm not trying to – you know discredit Japanese ramen I think it's 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 an amazing like you know we yeah. what we got to do is we have to get ourselves to that level but instead of taking ramen down but I would say that foe yeah. for example it's like you have to clarify that damn thing you know like that has such an um, intense labor. like I don't know I always have this image of my grandma when she's making any broth she's from Huey and you're just sitting there and you're just skimming and then you put it in the fridge and you skim more fat and you just keep skimming, skimming to get that clarity. Because quality broth in Vietnam often, more often than not, is attributed to how clear your broth is visually and how clean the flavors are. And that's such a labor of love. When people talk about, oh, my pho broth takes 12 hours, it's not just like you sit there for 12 hours. You literally have to be skimming, right? I don't know. Like my my grandma, I just remember when I was, you know, in in – elementary school. And, you know, she would take care of us of my parents are working, but you just, you know, grandmas are sitting there like skimming this damn thing. You know, this is not something that you just sit and it takes care of itself. And that's something that's so underrated and underpriced. Like we undervalue our labor as a community so much. Um, and especially when we're saying, why is there a 25, $30 bowl of fuss? Like, well, why is there a $30 bowl of ramen? It's in essence, in principle and philosophy, the same thing noodles fat and meat you know it's 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 insane
0: it's the cultural branding and it's yeah the root of where these thoughts and concepts take shape in the ground you know i had a min fan from finn on and these yeah and you know obviously she's number one uh in 2021 number one restaurant uh, la times and yeah talk about these things and you know we need more people like Min and you to, you know, beat the drums. These drums that of culture to instill in the public, like this idea that we are now having to really focus on rebranding. Yeah, we
1: focus. Yeah, we have to focus on rebranding, and we have to accept no substitutes. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really important. Like the vietnamese lexicon has become so accustomed to dai kai everything is dai kai oh you know i don't have all the ingredients for pho but you know that kai and i was like oh but then if you build on a carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy every dai kai starts to snowball you know and then you become left with a with with fake fish sauce Taking over real fish sauce, you know, we, we have to accept no substitutes as a people because, you know, for example, you know, rice paper that's mixed with tapioca flour or something like that. Like we have to be very stringent and just transparent with each other. Like, hey, I'm OK with eating something that's diluted down for, for cost. I get it. But just be real with me, you know, like I don't mind. You know, like we do that all the time in the US, like fake meat, mystery meat. Like it's kind of like a running joke, right? But there's a level of transparency is like, hey, yeah, you go to McDonald's, you're probably not gonna be eating real meat when you're eating chicken nuggets. But we all know that. But why can't we have that kind of just, hey, yeah, this is not real fish sauce, but let's not call it fish sauce, you know? Um, anyways, I think like we we have to demand no substitutes because when we think about if we even step aside from like ramen, we look at Donburi or any kind of rice bowl in Jap in J- Japanese cuisine, the reverence put behind rice is insane. Could you imagine us doing the same thing for tikka? Like that's just, you know, unheard of. Uh, it's not even I don't know, it should be if it's not already on someone's project. But I think like, yeah, I think we we demand
0: those substitutes. And and going back to Min uh from Finnekite, uh, she has puff um puff porch and puff porridge and puffs and it really she talks about this whole idea of the rice and how they get the rice to 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 bloom or to blossom a certain way to get the full flavors for the chow that they do and and they're known all over LA for that right that elev- that level and attention to detail is what we need culturally if we want to elevate to brands like you know lv or hermes or you know yeah. you name you name these luxury things that we like to buy in the vietnamese culture we like to purchase luxury goods at the upper high-end levels but we need to start to change our mindset and to to walk lockstep with the with the old brands of, of europe and and other parts of asia
1: yeah and yeah we, we we definitely deserve it too like i think we we are we can't undersell ourselves I think that's, it's tough. I think it's, there's a lot of like, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's a scary thing to do. I think a lot of like, it it really comes out when, when it comes like, you know, when, when rubber meets the road, like, I definitely think when we were first doing some guy, for example, it was just so nerve wracking to, to even do that. I don't think we have that collective, uh, confidence, you know? Um, yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. I think we're living in a day and age where I feel very fortunate because it's changing, and I think there's so many Vietnamese creatives now that are really pushing the uh, the envelope. And I think it's it's an amazing thing to see collectively that that yes, we are we have all these problems. You know, we have this dai kai, we have all this. You know, we can go on and on about the issues, but I think one of the amazing things, and to not underplay it, is we have so many Vietnamese creatives that are trying to push the boundary and are changing the the um not only the quality of products but then the the just like the global and community brand image
0: now you have a few uh lines that you're developing and working on to release uh in the u.s uh can you talk about that
1: yeah uh we are developing so speaking of like uh and things like that is like our, the strategy behind doing a gin, which is not a traditionally Vietnamese product is because of that. It's, it's a, it's a practical vehicle, um, that has a Western quality to, you know, introduce Vietnamese ingredients. But now because we have that kind of foothold, we can actually diverge into products that are more traditionally rooted entirely in Vietnamese culture. So for example, we've got two products. It's a natural rice wine, um, which is in a family of products in Vietnam called Dio Gai. Um, so the etymology of that is Gai, very much similar to, to, to Song Gai, his mother. Um, and it's um, it's just fermented rice wine. It's, it's no different from sake, for example. And this is also another interesting thing is because rice wine is a mistranslation. Um, most people think of rice wine as like this cloudy white distilled product or clear distilled product that they get you know, that's like moonshine, but it's not true. That's actually liqueur liquor or spirit. Um, but what we're doing is we're trying to produce a traditional product called Zio Gai. Um, and then the second one is uh a traditional ziot, um, but made um in the fashion of the Red Zhao community, um, who are just immensely uh renowned for their for their botany skills. It's actually quite amazing. Um both of these products have international counterparts. Um, And I think one of the the interesting challenges for us is to make sure our pricing strategy is, is neck and neck with those counterparts. Um, And it's, it's just, I think like, to me, I think this is going to be um, adding to the fulfillment of, of, of what we're doing with some guys. So for example, the guy, for example, is making sure we're not any cheaper than, sake or natural wine out there or like we're not any cheaper than any of the Italian Amaros which are enjoying a renaissance in the U.S. right now um, for example Um, but then it's also changing the mindset of Vietnamese people when you think about you know rice wine when you think about zeo that it's not just and you have this negative connotation of oh yeah is that like snake wine or whatever like no yeah snake wine sure there is like a level of traditionalness to it but then it's like it's become this thing that's like a gag factor you know i think that's something that we're we're really excited to be a part of is is actually now producing traditional traditional products um but then also making sure that we're 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 being mindful of how we message it brand it and then price it so that we're not devaluing
0: the labor that goes behind it you know jesus i think about the two prong problems or not problems, but things that you have to resolve. The first thing you have to do is you make, you got to make a damn good product, right? Yeah. First thing you have to figure out, you got to figure out how to do this and get the palette uh, because there are comps out there. There's comps that you got to compete with out in the big, real uh, wide, messy world. And then the other side of that is how do you get the pricing believable to the standards of the counterparts of the comps that you're trying to sell against and yeah yeah, it's it's such a huge undertaking but this is what is central to the game of rebranding or branding building branding in vietnam in in, it in its entirety if you think about it we're talking about two things production and we're talking about the branding side of it and if europe is doing it uh, with their perfumes and if they're doing it with their alcohol vietnam needs and we can because we have the, we have 98 million people or something like that we sure. we have to be it's just a flip of a switch that we just turn these beautiful uh country side uh villages and, and 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 folks into legendary uh distillery houses or places that we crank out just amazing product. And it's just an issue of believing and not believing.
1: Yeah. And it's so tough too, because, oh, it's just, when I went to France, i talking about France as opposed to going, I'm not trying to like romanticize France. France has got a lot of problems, but (laughs) the way they've done their, 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 their AOPs and structured the villages. So, because we went to Jura and we went to Arbois um, to visit the wineries um, and the cheesemakers and the kind of reverence that people have in the pride. And it's, yes, you're absolutely right. They don't need money because I remember calling around to even just visit. Like, no, I just, no, <laughs> we're not going to, you know what I mean? Like, we don't need you to come visit. Like, you know, like wow. it was just like, they were just, it wasn't rude. It was just like this very French attitude. It was like, oh, uh, is it worth me getting out of bed? No, I'm just going to, you know what I mean? It's okay. very laissez I don't know but um it's it, it, it it's a really big problem i think it's a it's a really huge undertaking so i'll, I'll take the example of the amaro again this, again this is a problem because i have to use an italian word to even exactly. describe, to describe it right because the yeah let's just say it's the zeal for example when we sent it to a competition late uh recently we actually got awarded silver um which is really high uh in terms of a ranking we were pitted against mostly italian brands Italian and U S brands, but there was no category for Zio tool. We have to compete under Amaro, you know, under, you know, something else, you know, so automatically we already have to do another set of layers that we are not, you know, there's no, there's no category for us. And even if there was like, who knows of Zio tool, like we, we by default have to start playing, um, uh, you know, we're never on a home corn advantage in that sense. And I think it's also chicken or the egg because the problem that we run into with some guy is we have to build our own supply chains and and we have to defend our own supply chains um, because modernization depletes, you know, we. What I'm trying to say is. The thing is, it's a chicken or the egg thing right now, yeah. um, and these ingredients, these raw ingredients will not exist in the future unless we actively fight to preserve and develop them. Um, I think we take it for granted that these things will just continue to be passed down, they don't. And that's the real shocking thing is um, just recently, like when we were doing, um, when we were using like these native riddles of rice, even though they're famous, nip gai hua vang, the amount of land dedicated to actually cultivating is decreasing significantly. Um, I think right now native rice, I think, I was just doing research on this. It's like less than 5% of our total rice production. Wow. Yeah. That's how fast hybridization has actually taken a hold of in Vietnam because the things that we're proud of in Vietnam, right? Oh, we're the second largest export of coffee, the second largest uh, export of rice in the world. What that usually comes at a cost to is we destroy our native seed database, our native um, strain database for example we're no longer using things that we could be calling aop if you look at japanese cultivation or even like the french cultivation or spanish they're so obsessed with that hyper locality you know sake is tied to a lot of local hyper local rice varieties for example
0: um i mean you, and- think, about, and- you think about french wines everything is yeah. built on bordeaux or champagne right. or cognac it's Everything is built on the region, the pride of the region of where it comes from. And we don't have said, that. we don't we
1: we we have the the necessary things to do it, but we just don't enforce it. You don't have so the mindset. Yeah, Nip Gaipa Bang has a designation. And when you call to go find the farmers, they're selling the land for industrial development or real estate development, which is so sad because I always say. Like, in Vietnam, when we have the opportunity to speak to decision-makers, we say, like, once you lose it, you can never get it back. Yeah. You know, because you can't, it's just, that represents thousands of years of preservation, of passing on from one generation to another, and it can just be gone like that. There's no way, you, there's no way, like... Once you lose it, this, who's going to do it? Like it's it's gone. That's the really scary thing about agriculture is once it's gone, it's gone. You know, it's and I think like um, when we're doing these these projects, like the Maro, the, the Zio Talk, for example, the thing that we're going to say, and we haven't we haven't published this yet um, is the original recipe that uh, the the medicine woman who we're working with, Go Limay Chat. We don't. We no longer have all the ingredients. To make that recipes so we have to actually repropagate all those seeds and those varieties so as our hope is 10 years down the line we can slowly start to say hey the recipe that was made in 2023 yes that was great but now in 2033 we actually have restored the recipe to its its former self like actually all the ingredients um and the, the 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 pure fact of the matter is the reason why we can't do that now is those seeds and those plant briddles no longer are cultivated, you know, and they're being de- they're being destroyed because we're also chopping down forests for you know commercial forestry or for real estate development or for road development and things like that. So it's like we're so set on development that sometimes we don't stop. To think about the unintended consequences of our of our fast growing economy in Vietnam. You know, we're so proud that we're oh we're one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But hey, why don't we stop and say, was it really necessary to bulldoze that forest and we'll never get it back? You know, I think that's one of the scary things that we have to deal with. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's 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 a that's an existential question that we have is do we want to be a completely modern society or how do we also keep our
0: traditions alive? Because they're going to be
1: gone and they're going to be just museum pieces,
0: you know? And what about activists in Vietnam? I mean, there were, you know, movements in the uh, federal government in the U.S. to protect and preserve parks and national forests and big swaths of land to just to preserve it for children and grandchildren, for the ages that would be able to enjoy the beauty of the landscape of the United States now alongside of that uh, kind of mindset is protecting the seeds protecting the processes and the cultural values that are coming from the the people that live there but there's no culture of that kind of preservation happening in Vietnam or is there i i might, i you know maybe i don't know much about the activists that are doing it
1: yeah, I mean there 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 is a concerted effort. Um the the really tough thing about Vietnam is is always enforcing and execution. Um because say for example native seed preservation is actually written into um law, into decisions, into ordinances, into circulars um There's legal precedence and policy precedence to actually promote native seed preservation. Um, But the problem is, is on the execution level, I think um, when people have to make the decision between development and native seed preservation and the money that's there to back it, native seed preservation almost always falls by the wayside. I think in 2008, one of um, the institutes that we work with for native seed preservation, they were funded by the government to do that, actually. They went around and collected all these seeds and tried to preserve them. In 2008, the budget just went dry and everything just – in a hot and humid environment, you have to continually mm. upkeep your, your seed bank. And most of the seeds are no longer uh, viable. You know, And that's just – no one's funding it anymore. You know, most of the when, – when you talk about, like, what is the role of government, I think very clearly and also in the U.S. as well, like, what is the role of government? Um, I think the role of government is is really at its core to provide, like in the Vietnamese language, it's called like an alquac, which is like a jacket, essentially. This is like the alhoc And from that, people can operate, you know. Um, and I think, is it the government's responsibility to actually do these native seed propagation programs? Potentially, yes. From an American standpoint, we say, oh, yes, because it's for the social good. It's for the the collective good and that's the role of government but the problem is if you look at the tax base of the american country of the, the country of the united states of america the actual tax base that comes from the american citizens that makes up the gdp or that makes up the percentage of the tax revenue of the u.s government i think uh, the 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 percentage was almost quadruple that of vietnam i'm not talking about money like the raw number of like a hundred dollars versus one dollar yeah. i'm talking about percentage like we as a country in vietnam are so overly reliant on fdi like foreign direct investment um like foreign companies to pay taxes that we don't you know like it, it it puts us on the back foot this is going off on a little bit of a tangent but what i'm trying to say is like i think like the goal the role of government is to give you the alquac first like the, the jacket and it's up to us as people, as citizens, to have that responsibility to do it, you know, because we don't have in in Vietnam the, that same kind of tax base to, to expect the government to continually fund. Say, for example, uh, seed preservation. Two thousand eight, the budget was gone, done. Good luck. Sorry, you know, the government ran out of money. Um, and I think that's that's like the uh, that's the challenge that we have. It's not only yes, the government we're a little bit more limited based on our tax structure, but then it's also. Like we, we as a community also have that that kind of responsibility and it's, it's going along with what we've been talking about this entire time is, you know, we, we have to, you know, we can't accept any substitutes and we have to play an active uh, stewardship in, you know, preserving the environment because, you know, let's face it. We, I pay taxes in Vietnam, but we still have to pay extra to pay the people to go pick up trash. You yeah. know, that's something that we take for granted in, in the US that, oh, our taxes cover everything. But actually, no, the taxes in Vietnam don't cover everything that like we as a community have to come together and actually sweep the roads, you know, make sure that it's clean and things like that. Um, and I think that kind of collective responsibility, it's a metaphor, you know, like we need to get together as a community to also make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and we can't expect like the government or, you know, some overarching entity to do it for us. I think that's that's. And when we do that, then we also have to take responsibility when we mess up or we also at the same time get to take responsibility when we succeed. For example, I think one of the things that I would err away from is um, maybe it's controversial, but we can't always blame the Vietnamese government for the failures um, collectively. I think the government has its role, but we also have to step up. You know, I'm not saying the Vietnamese government is perfect, but if you look at the law, there is law that says we need to be preserving native seeds. Are we doing it as a collective? I would say no. Um, the statistics point to, we're just, you know, if we just look at native seeds and native rice, it's just plummeting. In the last 20 years, I think it's, we've lost over a hundred thousand uh, hectares and we're down to like 5% of um, of the GD, of, of rice production and value being from native seeds. Um, and who's that on, you know? In part, it's us, you know, we, when you look at our distillery, for example, you know, it's a little bit hypocritical, but it's like, yeah, native seeds are more expensive to eat. They may be better, but people like better versus cost. Our distillery, our staff are like, ah, I'd rather eat the the cheap rice. It's just like the difference is negligible. I was like, no, would you imagine a Japanese person saying that? They wouldn't say that. They were just like,
0: yeah, like we have to
1: demand better for ourselves, you know?
0: Now uh this idea of seed you've said seed so much um and I recently got wind of a project called Seed translated to hat here yeah. in China. and uh you are uh, spearheading this with uh, another LA chef Win uh, from uh, Beu who's also been on the podcast as well in the early days and um can you talk a little bit about that
1: Yeah so Beu and uh and us are 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 partnering on a project called HAT, which means seed in Vietnamese. It's a it's a food and beverage concept. Um, So where we're aiming to open an actual brick and mortar uh, restaurant bar. um, But then also a small retail component where we can curate exactly what we're talking about, like very hyper artisanal products from producers who wouldn't have that kind of uh, amplification otherwise. Um, But we chose the name HAT because Hat not only represents like the smallest common denominator in agricultural society, such as Vietnam, but then what hat really what seed and hat really represents is metaphorically and literally the manifestation of passing down of knowledge and labor, blood, sweat and tears from one generation to another. You know, when when you go to villages and you see how people are literally seed houses is what they call them they have seeds in there that are tens of, you know, decades old that have been left from generation to another generation. It's it's the the next generation's responsibility to keep it growing, you know, and I think that's metaphorical for us is like, we have to keep the fire going from our ancestors, you know, in the face of modernity, for example, we can't assume that fish sauce, for example, or native rice will just keep being there for the next generation. We need to have flag holders we need to have torch um torch bearers you know uh literally and figuratively speaking to to continue that and that's why i think like the um the project we chose the name hat is to physically and uh, metaphorically represent that um so yeah we're only doing pop-ups right now but we're aiming for a brick and mortar uh opening in early 2024 um and then also curating um other hyper local ingredient uh uh, products alongside that as well
0: wonderful and you know we get to hear it here first and you know i think you've had one pop-up you're planning a few more pop-ups this year and to sort of get the ideation out and i look forward to having you come back on in a few months to talk about where we are with hat and you know hopefully other cultural uh ideas that we talked about today shifts and we perhaps can get some of the artisans that you've talked about. And, uh, I, I over, you know, overall, I want to get more involvement uh, with some Kai, uh, more artisans that you nurture and that you, uh, take care of in, in your, um, in your corner of the world. And, you know, we want to get more of these people, uh, the, put some spotlights on the work that they do, because it's so important that. The cradle of our culture and the cradle of or who we are and what it means to be Vietnamese comes from this idea of really enforcing uh, a process of doing what we think is right for the product itself and not Nike. Yeah,
1: I completely agree. And I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super like humbled and but also honored to be a part of that, that movement, you know, like I think we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to get there. As as a community and as as a people, I think so.
0: Yeah, Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, we will be talking very soon again. Yeah, thank you, Kenneth. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Fam, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, where you can subscribe like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.